Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ben. I told first service, Ken Johnson's a tough act to follow. <laughs> I didn't bring an eagle or anything, uh, but I'm going to do my best here this morning. I do want to say before we move forward, some of you who know me well know that uh, from time to time, my back likes to do something fun and slip out, and uh, that happened yesterday. And so I only bring that up because uh, I move a little bit awkwardly when that is happening, and I don't want to be a distraction this morning. So if you see me stumbling a little bit or hobbling around up here, that's why. And just to answer the two most frequent questions I get about my back, uh, yes, I do have a good chiropractor, and no, I don't want you to try something, uh, <laughs> unless you are a chiropractor, and then let's talk after the service. But uh, I'm going to be good. I hope that you're doing well as well. We're in week three of our series titled Uncompromised. We're studying through the book of Colossians. I love the book of Colossians. I hope uh, you are enjoying this study as well, but uh, being in week three, that means we're in chapter three. And so if you brought your Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn there. If you didn't bring your Bible, there are some under the seats around you. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to keep one of those as your own. It's our gift to you. But uh, Colossians chapter three, this is going to be on or around page 822 of the House Bible. And so uh, feel free to turn there if you would like. Now, we named this series Uncompromised. Because that's the kind of life that Paul was calling his first century audience to live. And uh, we call this, this, uh, this book, Colossians, we call it a book, but it was originally a letter written by Paul to the church at Colossae. And in it, we see that Paul viewed even the smallest compromise as a really big deal. And of course, you know that, that even a little bit of compromise can lead to a devastating outcome, right? A couple of weeks ago, I was preparing uh, to teach at the Noblesville campus, and my wife got out the photo album, and I started looking back at some pictures of when my daughter Kate, who's sitting over here, waved to everybody, Kate. She likes it when I do that. Uh, Kate's 17 now, but uh, we was looking at pictures of when she was a baby, my firstborn, right? And I found some real gems I want to share with you. Found a picture of Kate and her mom in the kitchen. Uh, there's Kate strapped to, to Beth Ann's front there, and it looks like maybe they're making a pie. I've just got to confess, when I first saw this picture, I didn't even uh, really notice Kate or Bethany. I was so fixated on that pie. <laughs> pie sounds good, doesn't it? Pie's always good. But uh, here's another one of uh, Kate and I just chilling on the couch together, and uh, she's so cute, isn't she? She's still cute. All my daughters are cute. And so with that, I just want to say to the young men in the room, uh, you are welcome to, uh, you know, look at my daughters from afar. Uh, <laughs> I mean really, really far away, okay? But other than that, let's just not. Uh, but I got to thinking about the first time that Beth left Kate at home with me alone, and it was a big deal. And you moms in the room know that's a big deal the first time you leave your child alone with someone else, even if it's your husband, right? But Beth needed it. Uh, she needed to take that step. She needed the time away, and I, I assured her, everything's going to be fine, honey. You go. We're going to be fine. And honestly, there was something inside of me that kind of wanted to show Beth that this is not as hard as you've been making it out to be, right? And so Beth took off, and I put Kate in her special little baby chair, uh, the one that has the toys that hang like three inches from your baby's face and makes them go cross-eyed as they sit there. And it's got a little motor on it that you can turn on, like the paint shaker at Lowe's. And so Kate's just sitting in that chair going cross-eyed, shaking away, living the dream, okay? She loved sitting in that special little baby chair. And so I thought, well, if, you know, she's happy to do that, 
I'm going to get some other stuff done. And so uh, I took Kate's special little baby chair out into the garage, stuck it in a corner, and I'm just going to be honest with you, I didn't think about her again for about the next hour, okay? And I got my table saw out, and I started cutting some boards and making significant progress, I might add, on a uh, little project I had going on. And again, didn't think about Kate again until the garage door opened and Beth Ann came home about an hour later and I, I just I could not wait for her to see that not only did I keep our child alive but I also moved forward on this project but as Beth got out of the van I very quickly realized that something was wrong and for the first time in an hour I, I looked over at Caitlin sitting there in her special little baby chair and she was covered in sawdust and I don't mean a little bit or a thin layer I mean she was covered in sawdust and do you know that Beth Ann didn't even care about all the boards I got cut like she, she couldn't care less I couldn't believe it but why, why because that wasn't the job that I was given to do like the job I was given to do was to take care of our daughter and I compromised and I failed and it didn't end well. Well, this is the kind of thing that we find when we read the book of Colossians. The church was being threatened with compromise and so Paul wrote them this letter to correct that and to urge the church to live uncompromised in their faith. And what we saw in chapter one was that Christ is first. Right, Paul uses the entire start of his letter to declare the absolute supremacy of Christ. He is the head of the church. He is the head of every single believer, and he is the one we're following because he is first. And then last week, we saw in chapter 2 that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, that Christ is the fullness of deity in bodily form, and that when we come to that saving knowledge of Christ, that, that we are found in fullness in him. We are given fullness in him. There's nothing else that needs to be added to the gospel of Jesus because because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And this morning, what we're going to see is Paul building on those two first two chapters as we move forward in Colossians chapter 3. And starting in verse 1, here's what we read. Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now remember, it's important to remember that, that Paul is writing to believers. And so much of what I'm going to say today is, is for those of you who have made some commitment to Christ. You are a believer. You would call yourself a Christian. That does not mean if you have not made that decision that this morning is going to be a waste of your time. But I just want to be clear who these words are written to. Paul says, since you have been raised with Christ, these are believers, and he's reminding those who have been raised that their new life in Christ is going to be different. He says, now you're to set your hearts on things above. You're going to set your minds on things above. And you might want to underline that word if you're reading in your own Bible, that word set. Uh, it is the word zeteo. And if you have been to our multiply training, that is a familiar word to you because it is included in the first words, the first question rather, that Jesus ever asked his disciples. As they left John and they, they came up on Jesus, he turned and he said, Taste Zeteo, what are you seeking? 
And Paul uses that same word zeteo here to point to the fact that when we are raised to new life in Christ, that there should be a change in what we seek. From now on, we see everything in light of eternity. Okay, we no longer live as if this world is all that matters. What matters now is that we are transformed more and more into the image of Christ. I think so many people come to the point of salvation, but then they, they kind of stall out because they don't know what to do next. They, they, they think, now what? Do I just sit around waiting for Jesus to come? What, what am I supposed to be doing? Well, once we are raised with Christ, we should begin focusing on the process of transformation. That's what we should be doing. And understand that in order to be transformed, we are going to have to change what we are focused on in our daily lives. For instance, transformation involves a change of perspective, a change on perspective. Specifically, I think about our perspective on where fulfillment comes from. So instead of thinking that next purchase is going to fulfill me, that new car is going to fulfill me. This relationship is going to fulfill me. My career is going to fulfill me. Instead, we realize that the only thing that will ever fulfill us is Christ. And we refuse to put anything ahead or above him. We're living for him. Transformation is going to mean a change of perspective. It's also going to mean a change of values. And the things that we used to think were so important, they shouldn't seem so important to us anymore. And the things that used to cause us worry and anxiety, we're going to find that, that they don't have that kind of hold on us anymore. Why? Because our hearts and our minds are set on things above. They're not set on things of this earth. And so for those here this morning who have been raised with Christ, I want to ask you this morning, have you noticed this kind of transformation happening in your life? Like maybe, maybe you were raised with Christ 10 years ago, maybe more than that. Maybe it was just in the last year. Maybe it was in the last month. However long ago it was, I want you to consider, are the things of this world less important to you now than they were then? Because they should be. They absolutely should be. And here's why. Paul says in verse 3, You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears you also will appear with him in glory. Folks, this is our hope. This is our hope. We are living not for this world, but for the one that is coming next. And we should be willing to give up everything that was a part of our old life to prepare for what's coming next. Here's what we have to realize. Jesus minus everything still equals everything. Jesus minus everything still equals everything. Paul says that when Christ appears, we'll be with him in glory. Like What could possibly compare to that? Nothing in this world, I can tell you that. No amount of stuff, no money, no relationship, no status, nothing. We give all of that up to follow Jesus. We set our hearts on things above because we know that Jesus minus everything still equals everything. And so many people, even Christian people, even, even people who would identify with Christ, they aren't focused on that. Did you notice that phrase that Paul used in, in that verse? He says, Christ, who is your life? And we use that kind of language still today, don't we? We talk about, well, sports are his life, right? Or kids are her life, or their career is their life. But for the Christian, 
It's Christ. Christ is our life. Christ should dominate our thoughts. He, he should be the focus of our hearts and our minds, and there should be nothing else that we would ever allow to stand before him. Christ, who is your life. So what Paul's going to do next is he's going to get very practical and uh, I think very helpful. He's going to give us some very specific instructions of what this looks like in day-to-day -day life. And he's going to start by using an, an illustration to explain what this transformation is like. Look at the second half of verse 9. Paul says, You have taken off your old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. What's the image that he uses? Well, it's, it's taking off old clothes and putting on new clothes. I bet you all have done some of that these last few days as it's been 180 degrees outside, right? You walk outside and it's like, I need a change of clothes immediately. Or if you're like me, maybe I have a sweat issue. I don't know. But, uh, but that's how I am. And, and what we do is we don't put the new clothes on over the old clothes do we? That would not be good for any of us. We take off those old clothes and we put the new ones on. That's what this process of transformation is like. It's stopping one thing and starting another. And I think that's really important to remember because we can't just add the new to the old. No, we've got to deliberately quit doing this and start doing this. And this, this transformation, this taking off of the old and putting on of the new, Paul breaks it into three categories in the following verses. The first category is this. If you're taking notes, we have to take off the old way of thinking and acting. Okay, that's the first category of thinking and acting. Look at what Paul says in verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And that's not, let's not rush past that. Like, that is really strong language, right? Put it to death, he says. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, put it to death. Now, what is that? Well, he's going to give us some examples. And he starts with sexual immorality. It's the word porneia. The Greek word porneia is where we get our modern word pornography. But when you read porneia or sexual immorality in Scripture, you can know that it means a whole lot more than just pornography. Okay, porneia is any sexual activity outside of what God has, has said is right and good. It's any sexual activity outside of God's boundaries. And what are God's boundaries? Well, it is one man and one woman within the context of marriage. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality or porneia. And Paul says, put it to death. If you are entertaining yourself with pornography, wake up. It is sexual immorality, and you need to put it to death. If you are entertaining the thought of committing adultery, don't be a fool. That is sexual immorality, and you need to put it to death. He goes on to list impurity. It's the word akatharsia, and it means uncleanness. Impurity is, is uncleanness, and we know what that means in the physical sense, right? But Paul's talking about the moral sense here. He's talking about impure motives. He's talking about moral corruption. These are heart issues. Then he goes on to list lust and evil desires and greed, which he says is idolatry. And these are the things that characterized our former life. These are the things that, that we wore before we were in Christ. Paul says, now you've got to take them off. You've got to put them to death. I, I like uh, Pastor Matt Chandler's take on this. He says, you've got to take them out back and put a bullet in their head, okay? That's how serious Paul is about this. 
You can't mess around with sin. You don't want that old self hanging around. And here's why. Look at verse 6. Paul says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Okay, because of sin, the wrath of God is coming. And we don't like to focus on, on God being a wrathful God. We like to think of God as being a loving God, right? And indeed, indeed, he is that. He is a loving God. In fact, he loved us so much that he offered us a way out of his wrath through the blood of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who absorbed God's wrath on the cross for us. But understand that God's perfect nature will not allow sin and wickedness to go unpunished. He wouldn't be a loving God if he did. Like sin and wickedness has to be judged. It has to be punished. And so you can either accept Christ's absorbing gift, wrath-absorbing gift, or you'll have to bear that punishment yourself. Those are the two options. And Paul is simply pointing out that the mark of a believer is that they have put to death those old ways of sin. That we, when we accept Christ's free gift, that, that now we've started in the work of putting the old self to death. They've engaged in this work of transformation. And I just want to be completely clear. Listen to me. Listen. The work of transformation is not what saves you. Please do not hear me say that. It is not true. It's not what I'm trying to communicate. There is nothing that you can do, no amount of goodness that you can fill your life with that would save you. Only the blood of Jesus saves us. Faith alone, grace alone. That's how we are saved. But our works are the evidence that we have been saved. That's where they come into play. And so if there's no evidence in your life, like that's trouble, right? That's trouble. You need to, you need to seek that out. We're going to come back to that. But Paul says this in verse 7. He says, you used to walk in these ways. So all these things you just listed. Like this, that's in your past. You used to be that way in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. And he goes on to list anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. He says, don't lie to each other. And so Paul seems to, to kind of shift his focus here to, a, to another category. If you're taking notes, he's telling us that, that we've got to take off the old way of speaking and reacting that's kind of what all of these fall into, speaking and reacting. Anger and rage, those are reactions, right? Like something doesn't go our way. We're upset about something. We just explode in anger or rage. Malice is a deliberate attempt to harm someone with our words, slander, speaking badly about others. And we all know how harmful these things can be, right? Like your words can literally destroy a person. That's the power of your tongue. And Paul says, uh, he talks about filthy language from your lips. Listen, it's that, it's foul, obscene, shameful language that so often comes from people's mouths, or at least it should be shameful. One of the things that was really interesting to me uh, as I was studying this week, my dad, uh, who also was in ministry, now retired, still preaches on the weekends sometimes. When he retired from full-time ministry, he gave me several of his books and his commentaries, and so one of the commentaries that I read on Colossians chapter 3 was given to me by my dad. And it was so cool to see the things that he had underlined and noted in there. But this one commentary was written in 1957. And that was so uh, shocking to me as I read these words in it. Listen to what it says. Now, we, before I read it, 
1957, okay? This is the age of leave it to beaver. Father knows best. I love Lucy. Uh, Just this picture being portrayed on American TV of wholesome family values, right? Here's what the commentary said. There can never have been a time in history when so much filthy language is used as it is today. 1957. And the tragedy is, this is the commentary still, the tragedy is that today there are many people who have become so habituated to unclean talk that they are unaware that they are even using it. Can you believe that? In 1957. So I got to thinking, what would that commentary say if it was written today? And all I could land on was probably the exact same thing. That there has never been a time in history when so much filthy language has been used as today. And so many people are so accustomed to it that it just seems normal. But I'm here to tell you this morning, it's not normal. It's shameful. Obscenity, profanity, perverted joking for, for those who are in Christ, like these have no place in our mouths. We can't go on living this way. If you have surrendered your heart to God, it is time to tame your tongue. And it's time to take off the old garments and put on the new. One more category that Paul lays out. Look at verse 11. Paul says this, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all, or Christ is all and is in all. Now, Those of you who grew up around church, how many of you have heard this verse before? Several of us, right? We've heard it. We kind of pass over it. It's not a big deal. But maybe you're newer to the faith, and you hear this, and you hear this groupings of people, and it sounds a little bit weird. And it should, because we no longer group people like this, right? We never walk into a room and go, now, is he a Gentile or, or a Jew, right? We don't walk down the street and go, now, is that dude circumcised or uh No right? We don't do that. (laughs) And we shouldn't. That's not how we categorize people anymore. What in the world is a barbarian? What is a Scythian? Well, here's what William Barclay says about this in his study uh, of the book of Colossians. And I think this will help bring some light to what these, these things mean. Barclay says, the ancient world was full of barriers. Okay, so I want you to keep that in mind. It's full of barriers. The Jew looked down on every other nation, The Greek looked down on the barbarian. The Scythian was notorious as the lowest of the barbarians, more barbarian than the barbarians. The Greeks called him, uh, little short of being a wild beast, Josephus calls him, still talking about the Scythians. He spends a lot of time on them. The slave was not even classified in ancient law as a human being. He was merely a living tool with no rights of his own at all. There could be no fellowship in the ancient world between a slave and a free man. Okay, so what we have to recognize when we read Colossians 3.11 is that these weren't just names for groups of people. Okay, these were barriers. These were barriers to loving the way that Jesus loved. But here's the beautiful thing. In Christ, all of those barriers are broken down. And for those who are in Christ, the distinctions of this world become irrelevant. There are no categories of people in Christ. And here's the third category of transformation that Paul is highlighting. When you surrender your life to Christ, you have to take off the old way of relating to others. 
You have to take off the old way of relating to others. We no longer see people the way we used to. We no longer have special groups and classifications. We have a new way of relating to other people. And Paul makes this very clear in verses 12 through 15. I'm going to move through these pretty quickly because they're self-explanatory. But here's the new way of relating to others. Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Here we go. How do we relate now? With compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Now, remember, we told you last week that very rarely, if ever, does Paul just use hypothetical situations in his letters. These letters were written intentionally about things that were already going on in the church. And so when Paul talks about being members of one body, and when he lists things like Jew and Gentile and Scythian and barbarian and slave and free, you can know that that's what the church was compiled of. All of these people who before would never have had anything to do with one another. Now we're, we're making up the body of Christ. And Paul's saying, don't relate to one another the way that you used to. Don't look down on other people because of whatever category you used to put them in. The only category now is in Christ. And you should love them as Christ loved people. Christ didn't give a rip what category people were in. He loved everybody. He loved the Jews, he loved the Gentiles, he loved the Samaritans, he loved the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross, and he prayed, Father, forgive them, they have no idea what they're doing. And if you are in Christ, that's your responsibility too. And it's my responsibility. And it doesn't matter if, if they look like us, if they vote like us, if they talk like us. Like, you're supposed to love as Jesus loved. Do you see how different this is from the old way? The old way was all about barriers. The new way is all about breaking down those barriers to love like Jesus. And so, if we jump down to verse 17, some would say this is the, the whole point of Colossians chapter 3. Paul's thesis statement in one verse, here it is. Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, okay, whether it's your words, whether it's your actions, whatever, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is God's call for our lives. It's a life that leaves sin behind. It's a life that's, that's marked by compassion and kindness and all of these things that, that Paul laid out for us. It's a life that looks more and more like Jesus every day. When we read that list, in Colossians 3, of those things that we should put on, that's because that's what Christ looked like. And we're supposed to look more and more like him every day. In fact, there's a big church word that we use for this process. It's the word sanctification. How many of you have heard the word sanctification before? If you didn't know what that means, this is what it means. It's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And that process will not be finished until we stand face to face with Jesus. And so if you ever interact with someone and they tell you, I'm, sanct I'm sanctified, it's done, I am, uh, I've arrived. You can know that is not true, okay? Unle uh, no, not unless. It's not true. 
That doesn't happen until we see Jesus. But here's the deal. As we walk with Christ, we can know that we will not be sinless. Okay, sin, sin is still going to come. Temptation is still real. There are still times that, that we will fall short of the glory of God. We will not be sinless, but we should sin less. Okay, that's the process of transformation. And we should be able to move forward from the day of our salvation and be able to look back at our lives and say this, I'm not who I should be, but I'm sure not who I used to be. I'm not who I should be, but I am sure not who I used to be. And we can look back and we can see a difference in our thoughts and our actions. We can look back and we can see a difference in our, our speech and our reactions. We can look back and we can recognize that we relate to people in a completely different way than we used to. And even though I'm not who I should be, I'm sure not who I used to be. And so I wonder, as you look back on the last decade, maybe the last year, even the last month, can you say that? Can you say, I'm not who I should be, but I'm sure not who I used to be? Because I just want to gently suggest that if you cannot say that, something is wrong. Because once we are raised with Christ, it's time to get busy in the work of transformation. But that will only happen when we truly believe that Jesus, minus everything, still equals everything we change that perspective. It will only happen when we set our hearts on things above, not on earthly things. When we set our minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and we take off this old self, and we put on the new self, those new ways. If you are a believer, have you done that? Have you changed your perspective on these things? It is time. It is past time, and this isn't a suggestion. Okay, this isn't just something nice that we read in the book of Colossians, but we don't really have to do it. No, if, if you have taken Christ's name, if you call yourself by it, if you would say, I am a Christian, it's time to get serious about transformation. And I want to say this too as we wrap up. If you are not there yet, if you have never confessed Christ as the Lord of your life, you've never received his free gift of forgiveness, why not today? Why not today? All, all of these things that we've talked about today, this transformation process, this salvation, this becoming more and more like Christ, all of that can be true of your life too. And you may be thinking, no way. I can tell you, everyone in this room thought that too. And then we watched what God could do when we surrendered our lives to him. And we would love for you to join the family of God today. Paul says it's, it's really simple, but it's not easy. The simple part is we, we simply recognize that Jesus is Lord. We confess that with our mouths. We believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And that as we move forward from that day, then begins this work of transformation. And today can be that day for you. Today can be that day for you. Paul also makes it very clear that we are not given unlimited time to make that decision. And so he, he flat out says, today is the day of salvation. Today your ears are open. Today you are sitting in church and I am telling you these things. That may not be true tomorrow. We may not even get tomorrow. We may not get this afternoon. What's the point? There's urgency to this. Don't put it off. Don't put it off. If you feel the Lord pressing on your heart today, push into that. He has offered us a way out of his wrath through Jesus Christ, his son. Let me pray for us this morning as we wrap up. Father God, we thank you so much that you so loved the world 
that you sent your one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And we thank you, Father, that you did that even while we were still sinning. We were still sinners. We were living as enemies of Jesus, enemies of you, enemies of the cross. And you sent Christ to absorb your wrath on our behalf, Lord. Father, there's an expectation that goes with that. And the expectation is that, that then we would embrace the life of Christ and be transformed more and more into his likeness. And I'm afraid that as was true for me in one point of my life, that maybe for my brothers and sisters here today, that there has been a stagnation, uh, a stopping point in the process of sanctification where we've just said, that's enough. I'm in. I don't need to do anything else. And uh, we don't find that as an option in your word. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would find repentance in this room this morning, uh, conviction and repentance, Lord, because we know that that's where change begins. And we just confess, Father, that uh, there have been times we've heard your voice, that we've felt the conviction of your spirit, and we've said no. And uh, that is wrong, Lord. And we want to be people who say yes uh, to the process of transformation. And so would you find that true in our lives today? Father, that even today, as we can choose that old way or that new way, Lord, that we would be faithful to choose the new, uh, knowing that you love us, knowing that you are there to help us, that you have given us your Holy Spirit uh, for every decision, every choice we make in this life. We want to bring you glory in our lives, Lord. And if there are those here this morning who have not made a decision to, to receive uh, Christ into their life, that free gift of salvation, Lord, the, the gift of your Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, would you give them boldness this morning and courage to walk toward you and not away from you. And may this be the day that they would look back to and one day say, I'm not who I should be, but I'm sure not who I used to be. Father, we thank you that you've given us that option, that you've given us new life through Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.